Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello! Welcome to Saturday night. We're not centered. You got to move over here. I just like being close. (laughs) We got to look right. Okay, this is all the things. This is the show. No, 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 no. What? Okay, let's start again. We need to take two. This is live. We can't can't do it live. Are you ready? Yes. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. This is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I just said, let's have a clean opening. Then you messed it up. Well, you were looking down. Don't nobody want to hear you right now. Stay on task. The Lord All right. Like ugly. Stop All right. It. Helping us this week and every week back at the house is the one and only Bob Ontrager. If he's there. <laughs> See, he's giving us the look. And a fan. He's done with <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Sorry. So we should give an update about our set. Like why, why, why are we still here miles away from Bob? Why we, it's not miles away. It's a few. Like two. Oh, okay. All right. Our set is still in the process of being made. We're and getting redone. very we close. So close. It's looking so good. I'm so excited. We yes. thought we thought maybe we could have it tonight. Yeah. But we just didn't quite make it. So God willing, next week for our show with Katie Faust, yeah. we, we will have the set. And thank you very much, Bob Bontrager, for painting. And Emily Bontrager. Emily Bontrager, Abby Bontrager. It's a, it's a whole Bontrager situation. <laughs> but thank you guys for painting and moving things and putting up with all of the shenanigans. Yes, we're getting so close. Yes. We hope you like it. So we are live. We are live. But before I go too far in, my auntie Linda is on the stream and Uh I text her and my uncle Jeff this morning and ain't nobody got back to me. I was feeling all alone and hurt. I just sent text. You're just calling them out like that right here. I love them. I love them. Okay. And so I need them to text me back, people. (laughs) You're a fine one to talk. People text me. They're like, I texted Monique days ago. Where is she? You just, you just ain't right. All right. We are live. So we want to invite you to add your voice to tonight's conversation. Uh, This is the show where we actually read the comments on the stream. Uh, And if you have a good question, a relevant question, uh, we always try to work those into the conversation. Are you saying there are bad questions? Well, sometimes they're a little off topic or random. Um, But tonight's moderators are the one and only Alicia Moss and Elaine Voss. Yes. But it looks like Laura and Emily are there too. Yes. It's a whole family thing. Yes. Karen is here from Alabama. Ooh, what part of Alabama? Close to Hoover? Because that's an, I love that area. And I also see Tiana's here. Zoe says your hair looks great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, If it's not new, I haven't been around. Um, Yeah. No, well, kind of. Kind of new, new-ish. Yeah, it's on the spectrum of you new. You can you can go back to the family meeting from Thursday where we talked for twenty minutes about Monique's hair. No, this is where she asked me <laughs> questions for twenty minutes. Yes. All right. Okay. Uh, we also want to encourage you to support the show. Uh, make sure to click on that share button and um, 
like the show, make sure you're still subscribed to the channel because occasionally YouTube likes to help you unsubscribe. So um, I, went on, I went on Facebook, on the Center for Biblical Unity Facebook and on YouTube the other day and was unsubscribed from both. <laughs> from your own channel. Yes. <laughs> They're very helpful. Yeah. That's not actually helpful. All right. This show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, the Theology Bomb podcast and Family 210 Clothing. Let's see if Bob has a design for us tonight. There it is. Truth has no color. That's one of my favorite shirts. Yes, because of the glasses and the Afro, but also just the reality that where so many people are saying um, truth is relative to the experience of the color someone is. Yeah. You know, we want to maintain a very biblical position and says that objective truth really does not um, belong to a color. That's right. So uh, about $10 of each shirt sale goes to uh, help support the ministry, help support our family, depending on which design you pick. So thank you very much. It's a wonderful, practical way to help support the ministry. Natalie asked a question and I really, I want to address this because I think it's really important. Natalie Roman on YouTube said, can a white person wear that shirt? Yes. Yes. Truth knows no color. Like truth is not, two plus two is going to be four, whether it's a Hispanic person wearing it, a white person wearing it, a black person wearing it. Two, two and two is going to be objectively true. It's going to be four. And yes, the whole conversation about math being racist and all that is a conversation, but we as Christians are going to stick to the biblical truth. And so I say, yes, wear it. Um, she says she's afraid she'll get clobbered. You know, I, I definitely hear the fear um, and and can understand that and would just encourage you to consider it. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. Okay. All right. So, you know, the, we're still processing the, the big news from last week, last Friday, about the Roe v. Wade decision yeah. on the Supreme Court. It's left, uh, we're seeing tons of interaction on social media. You and I have been trying to strategize like, okay, how can we help people yeah. guide them through this conversation? So tonight is going to be the first in a series of discussions that we're going to be doing uh, related to um, life issues, abortion issues, yeah. advocacy, um, practical things. We'll talk about what's already being done. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I heard um, at the de- with, with the decision of Roe v. Wade was now it's time for Christians to get busy. No, we've been busy. Like Christians have been busy. We've been doing that for a while now. So So, yeah, what does it look like? Yeah, so tonight we're just going to focus on medical questions. Uh, We have a very special guest uh, to help us understand things from a medical perspective. Yes. Um, And we're going to be tackling such questions as, you know, what do you do when a mother's health is legitimately in danger? How do we think about that? You know, how does somebody as a Christian working in the medical profession as an OBGYN, you know, leading us through that conversation ethically, biblically, um, we're going to talk about the rise of uh, the use of chemical abortion. Uh, we're just going to unpack a lot of issues. So we are excited to uh, bring on the show for the first time, Dr. Chris Cerucci. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I, I love your guys' show. You have such great information, but you guys have fun too. So we try. I yeah, I love that. So thanks so, so much for being having me. This is the show where I bamboozled Monique into doing a podcast with me. So, 
Um, that is true. So uh, Chris and I know each other, uh, became acquainted with each other through my previous job at Reasons to Believe. She's a member of the Reasons to Believe scholar community. She's one of the scholars that I helped onboard and recruit when I was there. And super glad to have your expertise helping us out tonight. Maybe give people kind of a little one minute introduction into who you are and your background and that sort of thing. All right. There you Thank go. Thank you so much. Sorry, I thought I had unmuted. Um, yeah. So, well, first of all, I'm a Christian. Um, I became a, a Christian when I was 13, surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. So that's first and foremost. But I am a board certified OBGYN physician. I uh, live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and where I've worked for 20 years in private practice. And I'm also, I am vice chair of a very important organization, vice chair of the board, American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Believe it or not, there are some of us. And I am also a scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is another pro-life organization. And then um, as Krista mentioned, I'm involved with Reasons to Believe, which is where Krista and I met. yeah, so I, I've done some work overseas in third world countries, multiple trips to Bangladesh, and that's a heart of mine as well. But right now, God's um, brought me to do some work in the pro-life movement. Very good. Did you ever think that you would live to see Roe overturned? I'm just curious. Never in my wildest dreams. It's so exciting. I did in December when the oral arguments were being heard for the Dobbs case, we kind of thought maybe, maybe this could be possible. And you said you went there, right? You I was there. there. Yeah. Yes, it was pretty incredible, pretty incredible experience. But yes, yeah, so exciting. What's going on? I have to say that um, you know I'm in my fifties, and uh, so I've lived pretty much my whole life um, under the the Roe v. Wade decision. I never thought. I would ever live to see it overturned. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, I was shocked when, when my daughter texted me in that morning that it had been overturned. Um, I, I was genuinely surprised. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I did not think it was going to happen. So. And then you came running into my room. I did. Boom. Rose over time. Boom. I was like, Okay. And good morning. Good morning. I'm still sleeping, but good morning. Yes. So I think um, as a, as a OBGYN, I, I, let's just start with talking a little bit about how you think through your ethical framework, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the philosophical framework, but also, you know, so, so your obligation as a doctor and that ethical obligation, but also thinking about your faith and then how do you use those frameworks as you're advising patients? Right. So lots of parts to that question, but let me just start, start with just some ethical basics of ethics that were taught uh, in medical school. And so there's several basic principles. One of those is beneficence, which means, doing good for the patient. And, you know, as an obstetrician, I have two patients. I have the mother and I have the baby. So the first thing is 
beneficence, doing, doing the right thing, doing good for the patient. The second thing is malfeasance, meaning not doing wrong. We often say do no harm. And then the third principle is autonomy. So the patient, she may, I can advise the patient and inform her and she may choose not to go along, along that road. And that's fine. You know, people have their own autonomy. So I may represent, a patient with cancer, I may recommend a treatment and they may say no, and that's fine. That's her autonomy. And then also justice, which is treating um, people with equality. Um, so, and you know, so those are some guiding principles, but when you look at those with, in every aspect of medicine, they really apply. And like I said, an, an important thing is I have two patients. And so I have to do that for both of my patients, the mother and the baby. I want to ask a follow-up uh-huh, to that. Ahead. Yeah. So as a Christian, um, then does that um, interface at all in your conversations with people? Or do you kind of go into that that room, you know, thinking about it through sort of the, the medical ethic lens? Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how your faith interacts with that or doesn't. Sure. So... Well, I agree with those principles. I think they, those principles are consistent with my faith. You know, my faith guides all that I do. So I do have certain, you know, the field of OBGYN is just laden with ethical issues. So obviously I, you know, that my faith guides how I, I treat those things, including abortion. Um, so now we, we are told, you know, we're always taught don't be biased with your patients. Well, The thing is we're all biased. And so my um, responsibility is to provide information, to advise the patient, to tell her the truth, but in the end she makes a decision. I don't know if that's answering your question. Yeah, I I think so. And it just helps us understand kind of how you, what the guiding principles are that that, um, help frame up your conversations. You know, one of the things that I am seeing a lot is um, the fact that in the church or in the culture, people don't agree on when life actually begins. And what I'm hearing you say is that you have two patients, the mother and the baby. At what point does does the baby become the baby? What At what point does life begin? From, a, from from your perspective, yeah, from your perspective, Cause, from because we have a real biologist here, yes. so you might know what a woman is. You might what, know what a baby is. <laughs> I love it. Yes, I do know what a woman and a baby are. So, life begins at conception. Um, I believe that not just because of my faith, but biology shows us that. You know, when a a sperm and egg meet and the DNA combine that one cell organism has all has the unique genetic makeup. Its DNA is different than any other human being. It's sex, it's eye color. Those things are already determined at the moment of conception. And I think that um, people used to say it, 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 it wasn't clear. I think now that science, as we've learned more, scientists are realizing, yes, life begins at conception, but well, is it really a person? Well, I would believe it's, it's a person at conception as well. 
I think that's, I, I really want to highlight an important point because I don't want it to pass people by that when the sperm fertilizes the egg and that zygote is formed, that life has its own DNA. Mm -hmm. It has its own unique code and it is different than the mother's DNA. Um, And that is what makes it life as opposed to um, saying sperm is life or the egg is life. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yes, absolutely. The, you, you said it well, it's its own unique DNA. It's, it's got 23 pairs of its own chromosomes that come from its mother and father, where a, a sperm is a cell from the father. It's not a unique human being. You know, I have skin cells, I have hair cells. We, you know, it's a cell. I mean, it's a different than those, but it's not a unique human being. But yet when the egg and the sperm meet at conception, that being has its own set of genetic makeup. I, um, we should probably clarify like really quick. This is a point that we haven't said is that Monique used to be pro pro choice. You didn't ask me if we could tell them that we've talked about it before. It's not a secret. Um, and, um, so, this is an issue that you've had to. It's an issue that I'm still working through. Like if I'm 100% honest, like I think abortion is murder. I do. And, but you haven't always held, I haven't always held that position. And sometimes it's difficult to talk, like talk about publicly y'all. I am still human, just like everybody else. Somebody's like, you know, I don't want to wear that shirt. Well, I don't want to have this conversation. It's a human thing. And we exercise courage and we work through those things. Sometimes it's a long time. Sometimes it's not. Um, But here I am. And so, yeah, for me, part of the conversation of viability has always been um, like on the table of like, well, if it's not really viable for life, is it really life? Is it really life? And it makes it okay to abort because it's not really viable. What would you, I mean, it's just me and you here. I mean, and Krista listening in. <laughs> um, what would you say to the argument of viability, like, is it just, well, if you, I I think I'm at the place of, if you just leave it alone, it would continue to grow and be a human. (laughs) But I don't know if it's that black and white. Right, you you state that well, I think that is many people's view. So let me put it this way. So, uh, you know, at, at 40 weeks, a woman is full term. And at say 22 weeks, it used to be 24, 25. Now we have babies at 22 weeks that can live outside the womb with a lot of help. Um, so if that baby is a person when it's born at 22 weeks, is it not a person at 21 weeks, you know, 23 hours? And you can carry that argument back. There, there's, there's no event that happens in the uterus that suddenly transforms Um this being to to a person and you could say well they're dependent well so is the three-month-old or the two-year-old or the 90-year-old so i believe that's how i see it we there is no transition that you can say this is oh now it's a not a life or now it's now it's a person not a person it starts at conception yeah yeah, that, thank you. Um, 
I think that that's the place that I have arrived at, but it's definitely good to, for us to be able to hear um, because we can take that, that, that wording or that argument to our friends who may be pro-choice or pro-abortion. Yeah. And I think that um, for me, what was persuasive was understanding genetically the baby is a separate entity from the Mm -hmm. beginning. It has its own DNA. And so I think that for me, that's an important part of the, the conversation. We don't even need to talk about it biblically. We're just talking about it biologically and, and, and how are we defining life? And I think that the question of personhood, it would probably be great to get our friend Joe Miller to come on and, yeah. and talk about the differences between being a human and being a person and how that's being parsed out mm-hmm. um, in the culture right now. But I think that that's, that's an, a distinction that people might run into where they mm-hmm. want to divide you know, what's life and what's a human versus what's a person, what's the soulish component and all of that. But this question of viability, that, that timeline keeps getting pushed back as medical technology advances. Hmm. And I think that what's important to understand is that Chris is bringing out is that there's no magical thing that like, let's say we used to have viability at 25 weeks. Now we've pushed it back to 22 weeks. Well, there was nothing magical that happened in between those two times that, that made it the baby a, a person. It was the medical technology that advanced that allowed it to, to have longevity outside of the womb. So these are some of the tricky things that we've got to help people, you know, think through. Um, I think another thing that's very common, Chris, that we hear out on social media and the culture is that abortion needs to be legal um, to save the life of the mother. Now, I know that statistically, this is actually a very small percentage of, of the abortions that are performed for the sake of the life of the mother. The vast majority are on demand and for other reasons. But maybe you can walk us through you know, how you think about your ethical obligations about saving the life of the baby versus trying to save the life of the mother and how, how does that show mm-hmm. up in your, mm-hmm. in your patient room? Right. So you are correct. It is much more uncommon than is often put out there. I have never had to a situation where an abortion had to be done to save the life of the mother. So I have two patients. I have the mother and the baby and there can be severe medical conditions in the mother that require earlier delivery and other things. Uh, And sometimes you have to deliver the baby early and the baby might not make it because it's early. That is different than, Oh, well you have this condition. So we're going to kill your baby. And, and, so you're not pregnant, you know, we, we can always induce labor or a C-section, or we can always separate the mother and the baby. Um, but that's not an abortion. Hmm. So you've never had an instance where you have had to say, or where, where a patient has had to consider possibly having an abortion versus taking her baby to at least birth, even if it wasn't full term. 
I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Where where the choice is, I, I again, I, I, the mother's sick, so get an abortion. Or well, the other. So let's say, let me. Maybe it's better to just use an example. One one example that could be used if a woman's, um, you know, very early, like 19 weeks, 20 weeks. So the baby can't live outside the womb. Her water breaks, and mm-hmm. what happens? You know, sometimes that fills up and rarely or. But what happens with time is uh, sometimes that woman gets infected Mm -hmm. and she's getting infected. She's going to get sick very fast. The baby's not going to make it either way. Um, And sometimes you have to induce labor to save the mother. We're not killing the baby. The baby unfortunately will not make it, but that Mm -hmm. is not an abortion. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we have to separate the mother and the baby. Mm. That doesn't mean we're killing the baby. We're not just yeah. the child. We're treating the child with respect. Wow. We're letting the mother hold the baby. I mean, this yeah. is a whole different scenario. And again, you wouldn't, you always trying to save both lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's not possible and, and you do everything you can do to maximize that. I think that language is very helpful that you do everything you can to save life. Um, and sometimes you have to separate the mother and baby, but there's still dignity, value, and worth in the baby. It's not a, you you're know, not chopping it up or, yeah. or actively, there's a difference between active killing, which is what yeah. an abortion does versus what you're talking about is separating the, the mother and the baby, um, so that there can be dignity in, in the situation, the mother gets to hold the baby and see the baby and, and all of that. Would that be kind of the, the differentiation between the two? Absolutely. And, and then there are, uh, that is a very good explanation. And there are other situations, um, thinking of a situation where at 24 weeks, a woman had severe, severe preeclampsia. I mean, it, you know, if we don't get this baby delivered, she's going to have seizures and get very sick. Well, you know, we did some things to maximize that gave steroids and the baby was delivered. And yeah, the baby was delivered at 24 weeks instead of 40 weeks. And the baby spent several months in the NICU. Now, some of those babies don't do well, but I can tell you this baby now is a beautiful 14 year old girl. Wow. And so there are situations where we have to act and deliver early and, but you're always trying to maximize both patients. I don't. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, as a person who suffered through preeclampsia twice, um, I am very grateful for everything that my OBs did to help treat both my children and myself. Um, And it was hard, especially with our first daughter. I had it much worse um, at the front end and it started in the first trimester. And so I had a very long pregnancy and they were like, we want to keep that baby in there as long as we possibly can and we were able to do that until 37 weeks and um so I was able to bring the baby to term but it was there was a long hard road but yes it's uh, I'm getting more of the picture now of what you're saying here of of how you're you're walking that journey with with both patients in mind it gives me a deeper appreciation Mm -hmm. for what my doctors were trying to do so one of the things that um I think I 
see a lot of, and I've definitely seen a lot of the last week is this argument um, that medically induced abortions are needed and that are um, yet to save the life of the mother. So that there, there are generally many things that happen in pregnancy. I've never been pregnant, but just looking at Twitter or social media, which isn't the best reliable source for, you know, my information, but it seems like there's a ton of um, issues that pregnant women go through where, you know, we should definitely be considering abortions a lot. Is it, is that the case? Like, are there tons and tons of pregnant women that are experiencing all of these like medical issues? Someone actually in the chat, which may, which is why I'm thinking about it, is because someone in the chat said it's like less than 1%. And I think it, AJ Rich um, is an RN. And somewhere up in the chat, I think they said like it's less than 1%. But I don't know, it made me, made me think about that because I see it as like maybe 40%. You mean the way it's talked the way about, it's talked about on social media? It just seems like you have all these women who might die. Yes, because if they can't have an abortion, yeah, because of a medical issue that it's like, well, if I need to save my my life so that I can raise my other three kids, or you know, have this baby that we don't know and yeah. die, then what? But I'm just wondering, like, what is it a huge percentage? Like, is this something that that? doctors around the country are seeing a lot of, or is it, um, I would have to go back and find it. Is it a very small percentage? Like, I think the, the commenter said 1%. It's extremely, extremely, extremely rare. And as I said, there are other ways to manage those situations without an abortion. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. abortion might be easier for the doctor, just whatever, but it's never the right thing for the baby. And because I, I think in your case, you would say that it does harm to one of your patients. And if one of your guiding principles is do no harm, you're thinking not just about the mother, but also how do I treat the baby as well? Is that kind of how you think about that? Right. But I'm, I'm also, you, you know, I'm treating the mother also. Like if, if the, she needs to not be pregnant, like say she has severe cardiomyopathy or, you know, preeclampsia or help syndrome, or there's so many you know, when obstetrics goes bad, it goes bad quickly and very severely. Mm-hmm. So there are those situations. They're not, uh, you know, rare necessarily, but there's a way that you, you, you treat that. And again, sometimes we have to separate the baby and the mother. Yeah. And unless you're really early, we have the technology and, you know, um, babies can often do well. They don't always, but um, abortion, I've never, I've, I've delivered thousands of babies and taken care of many times more that pregnant women. And I've never seen that situation where that was, uh, abortion was necessary for the mother's life. Yeah. So now let's look at the, the side, you know, just one more question on the side of the mother. And then I want to field some questions that are coming in on the chat on the side of the baby. So let's say the mother has a medical condition like cancer, Mm-hmm. Um, cervical cancer. I, I think that w- could be rare, but um, have you ever been in a situation where the mother has, you know, that kind of condition and you would have to terminate the pregnancy? You would have to actively abort the child in order to um, provide a chance of the mother's survival. 
So cancer in pregnancy can be very complex. And, and I certainly have seen that. And with cancer in pregnancy, when a woman is pregnant and then diagnosed with cancer, you know, this is a, we work with a team. We, we get everybody on board. We would get the GYN oncologist, the cancer doctor, the perinatologist who is the high risk obstetrician. We would get the neonatologist who is the pediatrician that takes care of tiny, tiny little babies and develop a plan. And sometimes that's delivering early uh, for cervical cancer. It might be a C-section. Sometimes it's deferring the cancer treatment until delivery. Again, it's would be, I've never seen a situation where, you know, you may, you may do things differently, but not, I've never seen a situation where you actually have to do an abortion in that situation. All right. So let's talk about the child on the child side. Um, would it be, somebody's asking in the chat, would it be considered an abortion if the, if the baby dies in utero, is, is that an abortion? Mm-hmm. No. And there's a lot of, since Roe v. Wade, there's been some rhetoric out there, like ectopics and abortion and miscarriages abortion. No. An abortion is an active killing of the baby to kill the baby. But that's not a technical definition. That's just my, you know, I'm defining it now. But if a woman loses a baby and the baby dies, a stillbirth or a miscarriage, that's not an abortion. That's this very sad event but it's not, it's a death. It's not a killing. Is that yeah, I'm understanding yeah, the question yeah. correctly? Yeah. And I, I think like even, you know, there in the, let's talk about the ectopic pregnancy a little bit more help maybe first explain what an ectopic pregnancy is from a medical perspective and then how that's handled and what kind of language we might, a way of talking about that. Yes. So an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that's not in the uterus. It's most of the time it's in the fallopian tube. And unfortunately, a baby that's not in the uterus, a baby that's in the tube can never live. That isn't possible. That isn't the environment for a baby to grow. And if I don't treat that ectopic pregnancy, the tube will rupture and the mother will have severe internal bleeding. They, women have died of ectopic pregnancy. It's, it's a medical you know, emergency. Um, so again, treating, so yes, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, I would remove, treat the pregnancy, treat that it's either medically or surgically, but, um, that's not an abortion. So there's rhetoric out there that, Oh, now we can't treat ectopic pregnancies. Um, you know, I said, I I work with American association of pro-life OBGYNs and we just put a statement on our website about that and treating ectopics is not an abortion. You know, unfortunately we can't save the baby. There's no technology to do that, but we have to separate the mother and the baby and, you know, save the mother's life. I think this is really helpful to help us understand some of the language that you use in thinking about it as a doctor, because there's so much crazy rhetoric on social media right now. And um, this, this is very helpful. I, I want to ask you too about um, heartbeat bills, because one of the objections I've seen on social media is now 
that uh, OBs cannot treat patients with ectopic pregnancies because of heartbeat laws and that they will um, be subject to uh, medical malpractice. Why don't you give us some some wording around a heartbeat bill or heartbeat yeah. laws so we're all on the same page? Yeah, so some states um, in anticipation of Roe being overturned are passing what's called heartbeat laws where you um, cannot perform an abortion once there is a heartbeat okay. that's pre- present. And uh, Chris would know better than I as to, you know, what week the heartbeat tends to appear, but, but there's a lot of rhetoric that now uh, OBs will be forbidden from treating patients with ectopic pregnancies because of these heartbeat laws. So I'm wondering if you can maybe weigh in on that a little bit. Yeah, that is not true either. I mean, I don't know all the details. I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but that's not what that law is not what it's meant to do. And sometimes an ectopic pregnancy will have a heartbeat. Usually they don't because they're earlier. Um, But there is no situation that the same thing with a miscarriage. It's that's not an abortion. It's not an abortion. Um, Now, will there be you know, is there fear and trembling out there and what's people going to get in trouble for? And am I going to be accused of this? That, that may be true, but an ectop, treating a topic pregnancy, treating a miscarriage is not an abortion. I cannot save that baby. I, there's nothing I can do. And if I don't do anything, the mother will die. We're about life and treating topics, not, not a, uh, not an abortion. So my understanding of the law, again, I, I don't know the details legally because that's not my area, but that's not what the intention there is. I was just going to um, ask a different question. For sure, yeah. Um, so now looking at like a child with birth defects, you know, I um, have done some reading on Margaret Sanger and her thoughts of, you know, whether or not not children with birth defects, the poor, you know, whatever, um, should actually be given the right to live. What are the ethical obligations of an OB to counsel parents when their child may have a birth defect? Um like, or if, if the child is like very high risk at dying shortly after birth. Yeah, Monique, that's a great question. So I think it goes back to those ethical principles. Some, some doctors would say, oh, your baby has this defect, you know, let's do an abortion or that's, I don't find that to be appropriate. But what, what is my obligation is to inform the mother, to tell her the truth. Um, when I have a, a mother who we de- detect a birth defect in utero before while she's pregnant, I will refer her to a high risk OB doctor, a maternal fetal medicine specialist. They will be able to give her more information, and some of those things can be treated after birth, rarely during you know in utero, um, and, and get more information. Sometimes we think there's something going on and then there isn't a birth defect. So the, the first thing is to inform the patient and give her the information. But again, she has autonomy. And so if she chooses to abort that baby, that that's her choice. I, you know, that's, that's her, her option. Um, now 
you mentioned about after birth, after the baby is born, um, there's something that has become um, more frequent of late called perinatal hospice or um, it has another name. But so if we have a baby with say trisomy 13 or 18 or a baby that we know is not going to live more than a few hours or days after birth, some people would recommend an abortion. Well, the alternative is perinatal hospice. So you let that baby be born, you provide an environment for the mother and, and the father to spend time with their baby, comfort care, um, grieving. Um, and that can be a really, really special time that people will treasure with their baby. And, and it gives dignity to that baby and to the parents. It's, you know, it's heartbreaking when a child has something like that, but there are better ways to deal with it than killing it. I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I think that's an issue that a lot of people don't understand. They're not really aware of as, as um, hospice is available for those um, babies that have those kinds of severe birth defects where they're just not going to survive. But I think that it's also important for Christians to understand to not tell their friends who are journeying through that season, you're doing an abortion. Like that's not helpful either to, to say that, Oh, you ended your um, ectopic pregnancy or you had Mm -hmm. um, this baby with trisomy 13, you had an abortion. Cause I had a friend who went through that and was very damaging to her um, that so many Christians were telling her that having her baby with trisomy 13 um, and for the few hours that she and her husband got to spend with the baby, that that was an abortion. Like we don't want to be doing that either. Maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Well, right. That's a good example. We don't, I mean, these are, Mothers in these situations and fathers are grieving. I mean, this is losing a child. A miscarriage is losing a child. We don't want to add grief upon grief. You know, that, that it's, yeah, I've heard what you're saying, like, oh, well, why did you even let your baby be born? I mean, I haven't literally heard that, but I've, I've heard people saying that. And that's just, again, that's a precious child. And um, we don't want to add grief upon grief and accuse a mother of something that isn't true for sure. Yeah. So when it, a situation comes up where, um, cause I remember for me when I was pregnant, I had to take a blood test. I think it was when I was about five months pregnant. It was some big blood test to do a screening for potential birth defects. And um, I actually think that with my first child, I didn't even do the blood test. I was like, because either way, I, I'm not going to abort the child. And so that was medically what I chose. I chose to not do that. But for some people that get those results back and there is a birth defect, um, you know, walk us through a little bit about how you counsel mm-hmm. those parents. I mean, you said earlier, you, you might refer them to another doctor, a specialist, um, but it, it, on social media, it makes it sound like the minute that there's uh, a conversation about a birth defect, 
abortion is supposed to be the immediate remedy for that. Yeah. I mean, even for a Down syndrome baby. And I, I'm just wondering if you can help us think that through a little bit more. Well, a couple things. Um, those tests, the um, prenatal you know, testing for birth defects, some of them are screening tests. So they're may, they're not definitive. And so sometimes when a test comes back abnormal and, and they these tests have kind of gone through a lot of adva- advancements, if you want to call it that over the recent years. And so if they come back abnormal, sometimes that just means you, your risk is higher and you need further evaluation. But let's say it's concluded that your baby has, has a problem. Um, again, how, how are we valuing people? Are we saying that a baby in the womb isn't a person? Are we saying a handicapped person isn't a person? Are we saying a 90 year old isn't a person? I mean, these are human beings. These are people in the image of God. And again, my patient has autonomy. I can't tell my patient what to do. I will give her the information about the situation and yes, refer her to the appropriate people. But um, yeah, those again, yeah, you have to really look, a lot of it is getting, getting the right information. So you know that you're dealing with, you know, I know people who've been told to abort their babies and they don't, and then their baby's normal. Well, let's make sure we have our facts straight, first of all. And, you know, and um, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. There's a comment on YouTube from CS and they're saying the exact same thing that you're saying says, my sister-in-law was told that my nephew had Down syndrome before birth. He did not. They recommended abortion. Thank God she would not. Yeah, I, I have, Bob and I have a friend from our previous church, a similar thing. There was a genetic screening. The doctors recommended abortion because they were told the child had this birth defect. Um, we prayed for the baby. My husband and I prayed for the baby. And the baby, um, in this case, when she was born, was perfectly healthy. They went through the genetic screening over again. And there was no evidence of that. And that, that little girl six years old now and running around and bothering her big brother and sister. And, you know, it's so people are making really big decisions. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, things are wrong. And, yeah. um, but, but that brings me to the importance of the Christian thinking through their worldview ahead of time, like the time to get clear about your worldview and your stand for life is really hard to do when you're in the middle of a crisis mm-hmm. and your, your doctor is giving you some super bad news mm-hmm. about, you know, potentially a birth defect in your child and recommending a termination. Um, I think that, you know, the time to get clear about your worldview is ideally before that to know, you know, what you and your husband are going to be up for and how, you know, I remember my husband and I having that conversation of we're not going to get this screening test because for us that wouldn't impact our decision. Mm -hmm. And so, we just decided not to do that, but we weren't trying to think through this big ethical issue right in the moment. We kind of had a stand ahead of time. And this is so important because we want to encourage pastors to be having these conversations in their, in their pulpits and helping in discipleship on these issues so that people aren't just left to 
only talk to their doctor or think that their doctor is the only person who can weigh in on this because not every doctor is going to, you know, have a Christian worldview the way that you do, Chris. I don't know. Maybe you can comment on that. I think you make a great point. It's that way with a lot of things in life that when you're in the heat of the moment or the tragedy is the harder time to develop your personal, you know, worldview principles. So I I think you're right. And, you know, we have to uh, get founded in those things ahead of time and much as we can. Yeah. Yeah. This is why discipleship is important. Yeah. And this is why we have these conversations here in public. But I mean, even like in youth group, like how are you, you know, guiding your students to think about life? Yeah. You know, if you're now, you know, 30 years old and about to have a baby, and, you know, now you're faced with a tough decision, like you're saying, like, that's not the time to have to consider your worldview. Yeah. We should be raising our kids to understand, you know, life and what it means to be a human person. Um, if we can um, maybe just do a couple of uh, sort of change gears here a little bit and talk about birth control a little bit, because this is something that I've also seen on social media that there's a lot of confusion about. Um you know, birth control, uh, hormonal based birth control Mm -hmm. is something that, uh, you know, kind of came around, I think in the fifties or sixties. Um, but I think that there's still not a lot of, um, wide understanding of how this magical pill works. Uh, and I don't think that many doctors, inform their patients exactly how it's working. It's just kind of like, if you get on this, this magical hormonal pill, um, then it will prevent pregnancy, but we don't have always an, a knowledge of how that works. Mm-hmm. So is that something you, maybe you can walk through for us and how that works and how that connects to the conversation about abortion? Sure. Well, you mentioned hormonal contraception. And I think you're thinking of the birth control pill, but there are actually several different kinds of hormonal contraception. So there's the birth control pill that we think about that has estrogen and progesterone. There's another um, birth control pill called the progesterone only pill, and it works differently. There's an IUD that produces or releases progesterone and there's a progesterone shot. So there are many, several different, at least types of hormonal contraception. And you really have to look at how they work their mechanism. So is this, um, is this contraception, is it really preventing fertilization um, or is it destroying a, a, you know, an embryo? And I think that's what you have to look at. Yeah. Talk to us about that because I don't, I don't think that people really understand what's happening there. So, and I've researched this a lot because I had to decide what I felt was in my conscience right to do. So a regular birth control pill with estrogen and progesterone, I would say that, um, that basically, um, works to prevent ovulation. So the woman doesn't release an egg. So it's not, I don't consider the combination birth control pill an abortifacient. Now, some people would say, well, in rare cases that could happen. And, uh, you know, there's, it's difficult to get, uh, to understand 
you know, every possibility, but in general, that pill works by not releasing the woman, not releasing an egg. Now the progesterone only pill, um, sometimes prevents ovulation, uh, sometimes thickens the cervical mucus. So the sperm can't get through that's fine, but sometimes it prevents the implantation of the, um, of the embryo. So I would, you know, I would put that in a different category. So would you see that as a potentially um, an, an abortion inducing result? Because from what I understand, it, this is like the, the lay version of this, but so please forgive me for how, how um, crude this might be, but when the egg is traveling, it can get fertilized, but it still takes a few days for it to actually arrive at its destination and be implanted in the uterus. And so if we're saying, as we said earlier, that when the egg and the sperm meet, that zygote has its own unique DNA. So if it takes a few days to get implanted, and then what happens with some kinds of uh, hormonal birth control, what it does is it creates like a hostile environment in the uterus so that the zygote cannot implant. And so if we're saying in principle, life begins at fertilization, then um, that, that life would then be expelled. A am I on the right track there with that? Uh, exactly. I couldn't have said it any better. That was well. Look at you with your scientific knowledge. Well, I told you I took a medical ethics Go class. Dr. Bontrager. Yeah. Yes, I didn't know I was sitting next to someone with so much knowledge and wisdom. Well, I, I, told, I told you I had to take this medical ethics class in seminary. And for some reason, it really stuck with me. But this is, this is one of those issues. So now, which is it again? Which is the type of hormonal birth control that, that, that could result in that? the hostile environment? Yeah. Well, I've only talked about two. Okay. Um, but I talked about the two different kinds of pills. So there's the, the most common pill that most people take would be, you know, the regular birth control pill that has both hormones, estrogen and progesterone. Okay. The other women are, are maybe given if they're breastfeeding or uh, have some medical conditions. I personally, when I look at the mechanism of that, I'm not comfortable prescribing that. That's, okay. that's how I would say it now. There's other progesterone only methods like the Depo-Provera shot that for the most part prevents um, ovulation. And so, you know, that to me, that's a very good option as well. Now, um, what about the IUD? That's one it is at what kind of, what's the mechanism that that works on? And do you have concerns about that one? So there are two kinds of IUDs, uh, two classes. One is progesterone IUD, and one is a copper IUD. Well, the copper IUD clearly doesn't allow the embryo to implant. Uh, the progesterone IUD, there's probably different mechanisms it works by and may often prevent um, ovulation. But I think the, you know, some, some of these mechanisms are unclear and, uh, you know, there's people doing these studies to measure hormone levels and all that. I, I, um, I, I don't prescribe IUDs because I can't be sure how they work. So if I'm going to 
my gynecologist and I am asking about hormonal birth control. And I believe that life begins at fertilization. The question I want to ask my doctor, it sounds like, is I would like a birth control method that prevents ovulation. Is, is that the question I, I, I want to ask? That would, yes. Okay. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, primarily, that's its main mechanism. Yes. Okay. And I have had patients who are very pro-life and I love these discussions because they, they bring those things up and then I can have these kind of conversations with them. But uh, most patients don't ask those questions, but yes. So in saying that, you know, like I want this type of birth control, how do we know if the doctor isn't prescribing me, you know, the other kind, like, are there, is there something that I can look for or words that I should know, or is it kind of just like a trust factor? Like when you're reading the packaging, I, I don't know if there's words I have. All like, those I can't take words. birth control. It gives me severe leg cramps. Don't take birth control if you get leg cramps. But <laughs> well, see, I know scientific things. So um, why, she'll she'll right tell now. you. She will tell you. Like, I guess she might. Yeah. But I was always told don't take birth control if you get leg cramps. Anyway, okay. that's a whole other story. Um, I'm just wondering, like, if I go into my, my doctor and I'm like, OK, I want this type of birth control. Would they, you know, what if they just give me the other kind? How would you know? How would I know? You'd have to read the packaging about how it works. Well, what kind of wording would I look for? Chris seems very concerned about me. I'm sorry. (laughs) This is just me. So I think that goes back to you need to be going to a doctor that you trust and that you can have these kind of conversations with. And I think I would explain, hey, you know, I, these are my views and I am not comfortable with any kind of contraception unless X, Y, Z and explain that. And, you know, or if you can find a pro-life doctor, that's, that's great. And they may understand that better, but I I think it's having that conversation, you know, again, the doctor may have different views, but they need to respect your views. And, um, you know, maybe, you know, and, and discuss what the options are for you. Now we're getting some questions here about Norplant. I don't know what Norplant is, but it's another, I think, implant type of birth control. And how does that work? Is that anything you know anything about? Yeah, Norplant. That's like a blast from my past. It's these rods in the arm. It's very uncommon. It's progesterone producing. um, I say a blast from my past because it was, this reminds me of residency when the Norplant was more common. Um, Norplant, um, you know, people that use Norplant, and actually not a lot of women like it. And there's, an, there's another, a newer form of Norplant. It's called not, not cord, called Norplant. Um, but again, these, these, um, it probably most of the time prevents uh, ovulation, but not all of the time. Okay. Now you have, there's someone on our Facebook page on the Center for Biblical Unity Facebook page, Beck Andrew, and they say, Please tell Chris she is nailing it with an exclamation point. You are 
all doing a fantastic job covering this scientifically, carefully, and biblically. Thank you. So thank you, Beth. Beck. We're, we're Beck. trying. Now, um, there was one more question I wanted to go to here. Um, oh, what do you do when you're dealing with a patient who really wants an abortion? Uh, maybe that's their perspective, their worldview. Um, do how do you handle that? Like, do you just because you're a pro-life OB, do you just refer them to another doctor and then they can mm. get services from somebody else? How do you handle that kind of ethical situation? Right, and and that can be difficult um, because again, I need to respect my patient's autonomy, but I also will not do something that violates my conscience. So. Again, you know, you want to have the discussion and understand where they're coming from. Sometimes they have misperceptions, but let's say they, you know, you've had these discussions and that's what they want. Well, then, you know, I, I don't refer for abortions. Uh, I live in a place where they're not hard to get, I would say. Um, I think it might be a doctor's obligation if it were otherwise to make sure she, how do I say this? You want her to go to a, somebody that will take care of her, you know, so it, it's all about taking care of the patient. So. At the end. Okay. Um, kind of one final big topic I want us to cover and that's chemical abortions, which is a kind of mm. a new thing that's out there. I saw a TikTok video and I'm not going to play it because it was just was too vile and wicked. But um, there was a TikTok video that I saw a couple weeks ago where a woman was protesting about Roe and she took a chemical abortion pill right there during the protest and was like, oh. see, I just aborted my baby right now. No big deal. And so maybe talk to us about chemical abortions. What is that? Because that might be new for people. And this this technology and and how they how chemical abortions work. Sorry, I was muted. Chemical That's abortions, okay. uh, they they are more in the news and they're becoming more common, but they're not actually new. They were approved in the United States in two thousand. So, um, you think of a surgical abortion is basically in the first trimester is a DNC procedure. A chemical abortion is taking pills to cause the abortion. So it can be called a chemical abortion, a medical abortion, a medication abortion, abortion pills. Um, now people think this is more safe than, or, or may think that it's more safe than surgical abortion. Hey, you know, avoid a surgery if you can, right? But actually, it's been shown to not be as safe. It's much more dangerous than a surgical abortion. Um, higher rates of hemorrhage. Just a study in um, one study showed almost four times the risk of complications from a medication abortion. Um, so, what would be? I have so many questions now. <laughs> like, what would be the difference between a chemical abortion and what we hear about, like the morning, morning after, after pill? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So um, let me just go back to chemical abortion for, for a moment. So that's taking two medications. A woman 
in the first trimester, the first pill, mifepristone, is an anti-progesterone. And that basically, the baby needs progesterone to, to live. So the anti-progesterone kills the baby. And then the second pill taken uh, one to two days later, misoprostol causes contractions. Basically, the woman you know, goes into labor off typically at home. So that is a chemical or, or medication abortion. So when you talk about, you asked about the morning after pill. So if a woman has unprotected sex and is concerned about getting pregnant, um, there are several different kinds of more quote unquote morning after pills, supposedly to prevent pregnancy from happening and depending on where she, and sometimes they do, but sometimes they also cause the um, embryo, you know, not to implant or they kill the embryo. What is the time difference between like the morning after pill and a chemical abortion? Like, can you do like a chemical abortion at like six weeks or would that be too long? Because the morning after pill, I'm assuming is only good the morning after, but I don't know. Well, that would, that would be a good assumption. The morning after pill, typically it's, it's, um, would be people take it in three, three days, within three days, sometimes within five days, depending on the, the type of uh, medicine used. But uh, the, the sooner you take it after unprotected intercourse, the more effective it is in causing that woman not to continue or get pregnant. Um, and the, the, if you think about chemical abortion, which I think you were asking about, so you know, a woman doesn't usually know she's pregnant until she misses a period, right? So by then she's, well, actually, you know, she's six weeks from, uh, or I'm sorry, she's two weeks from conception, but she would, she wouldn't know till then that she's, um, um, so we're talking later in the pregnancy, I guess is what I'm talking, still early, but now medication abortion in the United States is approved up to 10 weeks. Wow. Is that something that is a prescription that you have to get from the doctor? I'm not going to Walgreens to get a chemical abortion pill. Oh, well, you can actually just get it online now. So you don't even have to go to Walgreens. Wow. Like on Amazon? Um, So, you know, I bring this up because what... (laughs) When medication abortion was approved in 2000, it had certain regulations. It had to be prescribed by a doctor. It had to have certain office visits. I mean, certain um, dispense in a certain healthcare facility. The woman had to have three office visits. The doctor had to report any adverse events. In 2016, no longer has to be a doctor. Um, They increased the gestational age only one office visit required. And then in 2021, it no longer has to even be def- dispensed in a healthcare facility. Yeah, Monique just, bit, she found it on Amazon. That's deep. Right. So I'm not saying that's legal. And I, but what's happening is the FDA has removed restrictions and there is a big push to make this just, you know, do it yourself. And, and it's really inappropriate. Again, I have two patients, but if you're going to do an abortion, you know, please take care of the mother at least, you know, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but uh, what's happening is these things are now any medication has risks and side effects, but 
you know, this has been pushed to where it's unsupervised. There will be no physician. They don't, they often don't do ultrasounds. So then the woman might have an ectopic pregnancy. She might be farther along. There can be a lot of complications by this self-managed abortion. Wow. And it's getting um, pushed more and more because I think that, you know, with the state states that might, um, you know, outlaw abortion, then the push is that, well, you can get it other ways through the mail, pick it up in another state, all kinds of things. Well, it's I, very I, convenient, I, but it's not, it's not appropriate. I, I have so many questions now so because well, all right, I thought I heard you say that you could get a chemical abortion up to 10 weeks, mm-hmm. but that seems to me that the baby would be like when I was pregnant with Emily, it was when she was about 10 weeks along and we had the ultrasound shortly after that, the first ultrasound. I just have so many questions. Like, how would you, how would you do that at home? That seems very risky. Well, that's very, I mean, it's very insightful. It's true. And, and just think about this, you know, you take this pill to kill your baby. You take this pill to then, you know, basically puts you into labor yeah. Women are told, oh, this is safe and easy. If you go look this up online, safe and easy, safer than Tylenol is out there. It is not safer than Tylenol. Okay. Even if you think abortion is ethically okay, this is not the way to do it. Is this kind of the new back alley abortion? I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't call it that because it's physicians who are pushing it. Uh. It's Planned Parenthood. It's it's the pro-abortion. Uh, it's American College of OBGYN. It's the pro pro-choice physician, pro-abortion physicians. But it's really trying to mainstream it, normalize it to the point that, like, yes. I'm potentially buying shady stuff on Amazon. No, it's shady for real. They yes. got a drink you can drink after you take your morning after pill because apparently there's some side effects and this will help you to ba- r- bounce back. Now you're looking at morning after pill. The morning after pill would be what we talked about, the emergency contraception. Yeah. That's not the chemical abortion. Okay. Yes, yes, that is different. But I mean, yeah. even this runs the, uh, yeah, because I, I typed in um, I typed in chemical abortion first, but then I went back and I did morning after pill. And the morning, I mean, it runs the, the spectrum. You can get one for $9.99 or you can spend $60. How do I know which one will be better? Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a knockoff brand? Well, here's the problem. So the problems, first of all, what's in those pills? But even if you do it, say you do it, Mm. legally, I, I, I can't imagine that's legal. Uh, you still, the, the, there's no required, you know, the, it's not, the prescriber's not required to be a physician. They often don't get an ultrasound. Um, and they don't even have to see the woman before, before the, um, before the abortion. So I think what we're going to see is a lot more complications from medication abortion and then I think that people are going to say, see, you overturned Roe v. Wade, and now we have this happening. Well, that's not why it's happening. It's happening because you're pushing a unsafe, um, you know, pushing the limits of something that, you know, has, has risks. And then when you push it beyond that, it has higher risks. Women, women are going to suffer, unfortunately. 
I I don't even know what to say. I I don't. This yeah. is. I mean, we could do a whole. Just we could do an hour discussion just on medication abortion. Really, she said you can buy boric acid for your vagina on it's, Amazon. It's a suppository applicator. You guys with- always like go shopping on your. Show. <laughs> No, we don't. But I mean, you're you're breaking it down. I feel like I need to research this. I didn't know it was a thing. That's I didn't, right. That that's it's so scary to think that you, that this is being allowed and being encouraged to be on a site like Amazon, where a kid who you know has their parents' credit card or something could possibly go and just order this without their parents' knowledge. Like what would stop a 14 year old from logging on to Amazon and priming it to her house or to her friend's house? Right. So I haven't looked on Amazon, but I have done some research on how you get the abortion pill, medication abortion online. And there is a site, there's many sites, but it basically you put in your state and and it will tell you, yeah, well, you live in a restricted state, so you can do this. You can get it from, you know, other websites and, and they, you know, will ask you some medical questions and, but it's, I mean, it's so inappropriate. It's, this is not taking care of women. This This is is not on so many levels, not taking care of women. Okay. All right. Get off that. Yeah. All right. So um, someone's asking, um, is taking these kinds of pills does it compromise the uterus? Like, could there be long-term damage to taking some of these, uh, the morning after pill or a, a medical, a chemical abortion Or pill? even long-term contraceptive, contraceptive use. Yeah. I don't know. Well, there, there are some long-term effects of abortion. Like we know that um, preterm birth is increased in women who've had abortions and increasing with the number of abortions. Now I will say that most of that data is from surgical abortions, which kind of makes sense. I don't know that we have as much data on medication abortion. It's interesting that um, women, you know, the narrative out there is also that um, uh, abortion is safer than childbirth, but actually um, the truth is that women are, much more likely to die within 180 days of an abortion than of having a child. Wow. It's so sad. Um, so, all right, we're going to do one last question here. That's coming in on the, the live stream um, on the YouTube page on YouTube, uh, Zoe uh, abundant. Uh, I have seen people saying late term, more specifically full term abortions aren't legal and don't happen. What is the truth? Is that so the question is about late term abortions? Yeah. Is that real? Do they really happen? Or is that well it depends what you call late term. I mean, there are certainly abortions happening at um at a point where um the baby can live outside the womb. I think they're talking about a, a dis, the um, what's called a DNX procedure or um, 
you know, partial birth abortion that's been outlawed. So that's where I, I won't even go into the details because that will really make you um, upset. It's but disturbing. Yeah. Very disturbing. But yeah, there are third, you know, third trimester abortions, depending on your state. Um, yeah. Third trimester abortions. I mean, you heard about that uh, situation in DC where they found these babies, they were full term or close to term. It's, it's horrific. Cause by the third trimester, a baby could in, in most cases live outside the womb. Yes. Remember uh, 22 weeks, 24 yeah. weeks, babies are living outside the womb. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, okay. thank you, Chris. This has been helpful and um, interesting and thank you for fielding all of our, our questions and just giving us your perspective as a Christian working in this field. Just thank you so much for all that you do and um, standing for life in your practice. And hopefully this will be an inspiration to others. Yeah. I think it's an inspiration to me. (laughs) I mean, you know, like I've learned a lot and um, I feel like I even have more words for people that I know that are, you know, standing for choice or abortion and things like that. So thank you very much just for sharing and just being real and honest and not holding back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. I I really appreciate this opportunity and you guys are great. So thank thank you you everyone who's on, on the call. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Good night. God bless. Good night. God bless. God bless you. Wow. Okay. So what did you, what are some takeaways you're, you're getting from, from that conversation? I didn't know that um, like neonatal hospice was a thing. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I like the, the language of having to separate the mother and the child. Um, and it sounds like yeah, like that, that there's just so much dignity that can be offered to a baby um, if they are, you know, going to, to pass away. Yeah. Um, I love the fact that we don't act, it, there's a difference between passively passing away and actively killing. Yes. That's um, an important distinction. I love the fact of just how gentle she is um, in her answers and yet hardcore, like we're not, we're not wishy-washy on the fact that this is life and we're talking about life. And yet her answer is just, it's just, it's just fact. It's just here. It's just truth. Um, So I don't know. I just really appreciate it. Chris has a very gentle demeanor. Yeah. Yeah. But hardcore. Like I love, I love that. She's clear about where she stands. I absolutely love that. I I think for me, um, just learning a little bit more about chemical abortions, that's in, in just the scenario that you proposed of, you know, teenage girls going on the Amazon and, ordering shady things and having it sent to their house and just how scary that that would be. And even, you know, to me, to me, making that available just so willy nilly, like just so anybody on Amazon can get it. That is not a stand for life. That's not a stand for, for the dignity of a, a person because Kids, especially when they, you know, find themselves in in jams and situations and, you know, they're panicking and all of that, they're going to potentially not make the best choices. I don't always make the best choices and I'm in a full grown adult, you know what I mean? (laughs) So we need to also remember that we have kids 
to to raise and to protect. And when people are advocating for, you know, having Amazon sell the morning after pill or um, boric acid suppositories, you know. I don't even know, want to know what that is. Mm -mm. Tiana says parents need to keep open lines of communication with their kids and provide a safe adult. I agree. The only thing I would add to that, Tiana, is that we need to make sure that our adults are informed so that they can speak into those, yeah. those kids' lives in, in a way that is biblically consistent, yes. you know, standing for the life of mm-hmm. the, of the baby. But yeah, this is, boy, this is eye-opening stuff. Let us know in the chat what you enjoyed about it, what your, what your takeaways were. Yeah. All right. I was also going to say, make sure to share this yeah. with your friends. You know, if, if you have a friend who might have a teenager, son or daughter, you know, make sure that, that you're sharing this information or, you know, maybe it's your pro-choice friend or your pastor who doesn't know how to necessarily address these issues, get it out there. And this is like the content is being created so that people can share it and be empowered. Yeah. All right. Now it's time for the tweet of the week. Okay, we haven't done this in a while, but we do have a tweet this week. Um, big news hitting this week about Emmett Till in the news, and we wanted to make sure to cover it. We didn't have time to do it on the family meeting. Um, so this is from an account that uh, we follow called African and Black History, but it's been all over the AP and the news. Tough tempos. Yeah, it's been everywhere. Um, that there were some a team of people that were doing some digging in a basement in a courthouse in um, Mississippi. Mississippi and found the original arrest warrant for Carolyn Bryant Donham, uh, who accused 14-year-old Emmett Till, this was back in the 50s, um, and they, they found the arrest warrant for her. She, however, was never arrested. Now, Emmett Till, you can see a little picture of him there on the left. He was a teen, a young teenage 14. Uh, black young person. On the right there was the um, the woman, and there's a more recent picture of her. Now, for those who are watching, and Emmett Till is a new story. Maybe they're not familiar with who he is, or they've only heard his name. Tell us about, about him. So Emmett Till was a 14-year-old um, boy. He was a, a Black child, and um, he went down to visit his family in Mississippi. He was originally from Chicago. Went down to um, like spend some time with his family down there, and while down there, he it is reported that he whistled at a white woman. Um, and there were, and, his and, cousins were there and testified that he did whistle at her. Yes. Um and how much she was a persuasion went into that testimony. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um I, I wonder if people will say that they, you know, testified that he whistled under persuasion. Oh, okay. I don't know. Um coercion. Yeah, coercion. Uh so with that, the woman's um the woman then told her husband and made made it bigger than even just a whistle that he touched her, he roughed her up, um, that there was some physical contact in, in there. Now he was 14. He was 14. I believe okay. she was 20 or 21. Okay. And um, she was working in the store, I think, as a as a, a clerk. clerk. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think he was either 
like down a little ways from her or across the street, but um, this interaction ensued in the middle of the night that night, um, or might even been like the next the next night. Um, the Karen Dornum Dorum, um, I believe is her last name. Well, her husband and I believe it's like his brother and some friends went and got Emmett Till from his family's home. So they kidnapped him. They kidnapped him, um, beat him and just horrible, horrible, horrible things um, and ended up shooting him and then tying, it was a fan around uh, around his, some part of his body. Oh, I thought it was a fan, like a big, the motor part of, of, what I read on the AP was that they tied a cotton gin around okay. his neck. So I'm going by oh. the AP. Okay. That's Either way, they, they tied Something. some huge piece of equipment to him and threw him to the bottom of the lake. Yeah. Um, he was His body was retrieved. He was basically unrecognizable. Um, and his mother at the funeral actually had an open casket funeral to be able to show the world what basically racism um and evil did to her child. And so this, um, this story has gone on and, you know, the, the men, um, I don't believe they ever did time only. I'm not sure that they were actually, um, like put on trial. I'm not sure, but, but his mother, (laughs) Emmett Till's mother kept asking for justice Mm -hmm. persistently over the years she made that decision to have an open casket. Now, if people want to go look at the picture on Twitter, it's there of the open casket. We're not going to show it because it's fairly graphic. But that decision to have an open casket was very funeral, intentional. It was very mm-hmm. intentional. And from what you told me the other day, that Emmett Till's death really changed the conversation about civil rights. I believe it was one of the like foremost conversations about changing civil rights. It took another 10 years or so before it actually happened. But I think Emmett Till's death and the um, bombing of the four girls at the Birmingham church. I think that but those really... are kind of markers like beginning and end, like Emmett Till's death happens sort of at the Genesis of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. the bombing at the, was it 16th street mm-hmm. Baptist, uh, church. Baptist church mm-hmm. in Birmingham that you and I went to mm-hmm. several months ago that really pushed things over the edge. Yeah. It pushed civil rights yeah. into, you know, pressuring, you know, like let's get it passed into law. Yeah. Cause now, now these are children, you know, it's yeah. not like adults are, yeah. you know, having their, their qualms. It's, it's children. Um, so what are your thoughts about this whole so, idea about pushing to arrest this woman who's well, now in her eighties? Here's the thing is that a couple of years back, she actually confessed that she lied. Oh, Yes. And I'm not sure if there was a jurisdiction time or something like that, but it came statute out. Statute of limitations. Yeah, statute of limitations. But it actually came out that she lied and um, didn't tell the the truth about what happened. Sorry, I have hair in my mouth. Um, and, you know, so what? I had hair in my mouth. I can't talk with hair in my mouth. Must you pronounce that? All right, go ahead. Would just want people to see me just digging in my lip and I was gonna not know what's going the new on. Button. All oh, right, okay. go ahead. Um, so fast forward, and now people are digging around in the this base in the basement of I don't know if it was, was an it? old courthouse, um, but they found the original arrest warrant, which could potentially mean new evidence is being um, brought in. Which Emma could, Till still has um, relatives, cousins specifically who are alive mm-hmm. and still trying to fight 
for justice on yeah. his behalf. Yes. So, so the conversation is, is, you know, is it right to arrest this woman? She's in her 80s. She's in her 80s. So some people would say she wasn't arrested, apparently, mm-hmm. um, back in the 50s, because uh, when the sheriffs got the arrest warrant, they're like, you know, she has two young kids. Mm-hmm. We don't want to arrest her. Mm-hmm. Well, now the story is we don't want to arrest her. She's an old woman. You know, some people are making that argument. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious what what your thoughts are about it at, at this point, based on what you know, which, you know, but just what are your thoughts? Do you, do you arrest her? So you're yeah. pro the arrest. Yes, I am. I am completely womb to tomb. And so if if you do something that our judicial system says, you know, you are responsible. It's biblical. If if. I kill someone and I'm not saying that she killed him, but if I am responsible for the death of someone and that now means my death, that is one, that's a biblical precedent. Like I'm not just trying to look at it from the the issue of like the laws of the land, but also biblically, what does justice say? How do we um, meet out justice? There's no, no age limit on justice. Like that, that isn't a biblical concept from my understanding. Now, could I be wrong? Could somebody send me over a scripture and say, hey, look, the the law says, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, do these things over anybody who's 79. I haven't seen that. Biblically, justice would say, you know, you did this, you are responsible for this. And this is the consequence of that. How do we meet out justice? And so I think for people who are saying, well, she's really old now and all that, I don't, it doesn't fall, you know, on my heart as being an issue that I have to be concerned about. The issue that I need to be concerned about is what is the the biblical mandate or requirement for justice to be served? Yeah. Thank you, Natalie, for encouraging people to hit that like button. Um, AJ uh, says that the murderers went on trial, but they were acquitted. Mm. Um, after that, they did a magazine confession because they couldn't be prosecuted Double again. Jeopardy. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And but I don't think she ever confessed. What I remember is like sometime within the last um, ten years, I'll say that she actually came out and said that she had lied about it mm-hmm. all. Um, but you know, I would feel this way if it was. Black on white, I would feel this way if it was black on black, white on white, because to me, there's a biblical standard for justice and there's a biblical standard for um, how we treat human persons. You don't kill a human person, just like we don't murder. And so that's that's the standard. And when we do murder, there are... um, there are repercussions for when you murder or when you assist in a murder. And when you get found out that you assisted or that you murdered, you need like justice needs to be meted out. Yeah. I I think my only question, there's just so many things I don't know is, you know, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on, on, or what the specific charge would be if that's accessory to murder or how that works. I don't know anything about that, but I mean, I understand the principle of what you're saying is um, just because somebody's old doesn't mean that they shouldn't be prosecuted. That's, that's um, not even on the table. Like, yeah. There, in fact, I, recently I saw something where there was like a 101-year-old um, Nazi guard who they finally found arrested and put on trial. He's 101. That's so, unfortunate. So, you know, at that level of accountability now, you know, 
to me, there's just a lot of things that I don't know about how statute of limitations works on a charge like that. But it certainly does seem to be a miscarriage of justice that they had the arrest warrant and they just round filed it. Like, that's just, that's mm-hmm. not right. So I think somebody actually probably just hit it and like, yeah. you know, put it way down deep where yeah. nobody thought that they would look. Yeah. But um, yeah, like just... Yeah, the the argument of, you know, we can't do anything because she's too old. No, no, no. You can't you can't argue and say that you are yeah. pro-life if you're not going to be for the life, for all of life. You know what I mean? And understand that sometimes being pro-life actually means that this person here faces the repercussions of their sin. Yeah, I think um the AJ says there's no statute of limitations on murder, which is correct. Yeah, there isn't. I just don't know what the charge was against her. I doubt it was murder. It was probably like accessory or Mm -hmm. something. I don't know what the statute of limitations on that would be. But anyways, well, those are some things to to think about and um, some thoughts on that issue. We hope that you found this show helpful tonight please 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 be sure to hit that like button that really helps the algorithm and yes. pushing it out to more people so that they will see it and um share the show uh and uh, let us know what you thought and what other aspects of the abortion slash pro-life conversation you would like us to cover in the co- coming weeks we have some ideas next week we're going to be having a conversation with katie faust yep yeah, um, she has a book written called Us Before Them. No, or, no, I'm sorry, Them, them before, before Us. Talking about kids before um, adults. adults. Yes. So we're going to be talking about that and getting a little bit into the in vitro fertilization um, conversation, surrogacy, and all of that. Looking so at the rights of children. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we will see you next week. Take care and God bless. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.